Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. In the cross, I said, Mr. Feinberg, we're taught in law school never to ask a question we don't know the answer to, but here it goes. You've been in this case, in that case, in this case, in that case that I've been involved in. Have you ever known me to be a fraudster? And Ken Feinberg, with his considerable pedigree and his massive ego, leans <laughs> forward into the microphone and looks right at the prosecutor and, and resoundingly says, never. You know, was counting on him to communicate that, and he did, and I'm forever thankful for him being honest that day. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to another episode of the Great Trials Podcast. As always, this is Steve Lowry with uh, Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. No complaints. Yeah, and you, we were just talking about this uh, right before. You're enjoying your move up to Atlanta? I am. It's been good. I um for those of our listeners who are in Atlanta or have been to Atlanta, I went to the roof up at Pont City Market and um, they have all these games up there and like slides for grownups. Um, <laughs> that was my personal favorite part. <laughs> um, so it was cool. I'm having a good time. Yeah. And it's right there by the Beltline, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Except, on, except during the summer, it's way too hot. Oh, yeah. Forget it. Well, um, well, Yvonne, the, uh, the, uh, our guest today is a, a, a very well-known trial lawyer from, uh, from Texas, from Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, he's also, I think, based out of San Antonio now. Uh, but we, ha- we are so happy to have Michael Watts uh, from the Watts-Guerra firm. Uh, and I'm sorry if I mangled that pronunciation, but uh, you can look up Michael at wattsguerra.com. It's W-A-T-T-S-G-U-E-R-R-A. Dot com. Uh, Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Well, we have just a really uh, um, interesting case to talk about. And, uh, and you know, we're going to get into the details, but um, this involves a criminal case. And, uh, and Michael, I'm, I'm sorry to say that uh, you were the defendant and you represented yourself and you represented yourself very well by uh, getting, uh, I think it was 95 counts of uh claims of mail fraud, wire fraud, identity theft, and aggravated identity theft all found uh, not guilty. So uh, I'm sorry you went through that, but uh, but congratulations on a great result. Well, it helped that we didn't do it, but... Uh, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Being innocent always helps. <laughs> that generally helps you win uh, criminal trials. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but let me let me uh, give a little background on you, Michael, so our uh, listeners who, who uh, don't know you can, uh, can uh, know a little bit about you. But as I said, Michael uh, is uh, from Corpus Christi. I think he's living in San Antonio now and, uh, and has offices in both as well as uh, around the state of Texas. Uh, Michael has been uh, heavily involved in uh, some of the biggest cases in the country, including a number of multi-district litigation uh, cases, uh, heavily involved in the Ford, Firestone, uh, Bridgestone um block of cases that involved the the wilderness AT tire, uh, where you had just tons of horrific accidents, uh, involving, uh, blowouts or, or detreads and, uh, and rollovers. And, uh, and Michael has, is a board certified in PI or personal injury by the Texas board of legal specialization. He's of course, AV rated. One thing I thought was really impressive, Michael, you graduated from the university of Texas law school with honors at the age of 21, um, which is uh, impressive. I also noticed that you were a member of Phi Beta Kappa, and, uh, and you know, I was never invited to be part of that. Um, and <laughs> oh, <did you> <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and you were, a lot of different fraternities and that one uh, was the only one that would take me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you were top 40 under 40 uh, uh, lawyers by the National Law Journal, named to the plaintiff's hot list, top 15 law firms in the country. Uh, you know, more verdicts than, than I can uh, speak about, tons of uh, uh, great trial verdicts, and, and you know, uh, a heavy amount of work in multi-district litigation, which is what we're going to be talking about today, but essentially involves, you know, large mass tort uh, litigation where they're consolidated in a federal court and usually representing hundreds, if not thousands of claimants, uh, you know, on a particular issue. And in uh, the case that we're talking about today involved uh, the uh, BP disaster, the Deepwater Horizon explosion back in two, April of 2010. Um, but so let me see if I can set this case up a little bit, Michael. And if I if I've messed it up, then uh, then please just correct me. But um, what I understand, so after the Deepwater Horizon explosion uh, happened, um, you your law firm uh, put together a a group of, of investors and, and a group who is essentially going to um, see about getting some of the, the claimants in mainly Mississippi um, to uh, who had been injured or affected by the, uh, the Deepwater uh, Horizon explosion. Um, through that process, you uh, worked with an, a couple of independent contractors. And I guess I should say, um, David, your brother uh, is the, CEO of your company. I think it sounds like he runs sort of all the tech side of everything and, and the organizing of the databases. Right. Uh, and through all and, and through that, um, essentially, and, and, and if I if I if I'm wrong about this, correct me from what I could tell from the facts is, you know, um, you thought you had gathered about 40,000 plaintiffs or claimants. Um, and, and as you might imagine, uh, when you when there's about you know, that number of claimants, um, there's going to be some, you know, mistakes, problems with some of the claimants in there. Uh, and some of them, and, and there were, um, and, you know, I, I guess there was at least some allegation that, that some of the people claimed they weren't represented by your law firm. Some of the people claimed that, that somebody had stolen their identity and some of the people didn't have social security numbers. Uh, and, and, you know, and essentially, um, when you're working through the MDL process, you're hit with a number of very fast deadlines when you're making these claims um, where you, you have to file um, plaintiff fact sheets, which are very detailed. And, um, and some of those turned out to have some problems. And so the government for, um, you know, I guess because the Justice Department had gotten uh, alerted on a couple of these, decided to uh, do an investigation and ended up bringing criminal charges. Uh, like I said, mail fraud, wire fraud, aggravated identity theft, identity theft against you, your brother, uh, your paralegal, um, uh, um, a, and then a couple of independent contractors uh, named Greg Warren, uh, Eloy Guerra, who's no relation to your partner, I understand. Um, somebody named Christy Lee and, and somebody named Abby Wynn. Um, essentially trying to claim that uh, you were, I, I think the allegation was you were knowingly putting false claims in front of the, the, um, the BP um, settlement fund uh, and, you know, essentially trying to commit fraud. And so they uh, charged you with a crime. So um, uh, 
you know, man, where to start on that? Uh, but uh, I know that is a very uh, high level, uh, just look at what, uh, what the case was about. It, 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 am I essentially right, Michael? No, I think you've got it right. I mean, it, it's a synopsis of a professional disaster uh, where 25 years of reputation building come crashes, uh, comes cra- crashing down right in front of you based on uh, an indictment that uh, was not true. Yeah. Um, but the bottom line is, is that in 2010, when the BP oil spill happened, uh, I tried 11 cases that year. Um, and I had previously represented about 30,000 people in uh, the New Orleans, Louisiana, Mississippi area uh, who had been subjected to formaldehyde uh, when they were given post-Katrina temporary housing units by FEMA. Uh, FEMA was in such a hurry uh, that uh, they contracted with a bunch of folks that didn't use um, uh, formaldehyde uh, uh, restrictions. And so you had formaldehyde emitting woods in high heat, high humidity areas uh, where people were being subjected to a cancer causing uh, element like formaldehyde. So we worked with a law firm there that had two of these uh, independent contractors. Uh, we filled out 30,000 plaintiff fact sheets, uh, 99.4% of all the claimants that we represented got paid. It worked out fine. So in 2010, uh, I'm trying uh, a dram shop case actually in South Texas. And one of those gentlemen approached me and said, Hey, have you heard about this oil spill? And I'm embarrassed to say six days into it. I hadn't because when I go to trial, I'm somewhat preoccupied. Right. Uh, and he said, the oil is going right to where all of our clients are. And he was right. He says, do you want to do BP? And I said, sure. And so program, uh, like every other law firm in the Southeast, uh, to in effect fund, um, town hall meetings, which are permitted under the ethical rules, um, you know, advertise for and, and tell people to come to the local, uh, VFW hall or, or the, you know, whatever the committee, uh, I mean the, the room is, uh, where you can fit several hundred people. Um, so we financed a program to do that, uh, several hundred times, not only in Mississippi, but in Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, the entire Gulf Coast was hit um, and amassed what we thought was 40,000 clients. What we did not know and could not know is that the people that were supposed to be doing that for us, uh, in fact, stole our money. And in order to prove a claim in the BP oil spill case, uh, in effect, the, the oil spill happened on April the 20th of 2010. Um, and so the claim was a loss of income. What you made in 2009 is, uh, you know, far more than what you made in 2010 because the entire Gulf Coast economy shut down because of this, this oil spill. And so we, we needed tax returns that showed that our clients were making 2X in 2009 and only X in 2010, and therefore we're entitled to the difference. Right. So these folks were tasked with the idea of not only uh, uh, getting these folks to show up at uh, town hall meetings and sign contracts, but also to give us the necessary releases that we needed in terms of the forms of a taxpayer ID uh, release form. Uh, so that we could go to the Internal Revenue Service and get the tax returns that were necessary uh, to show the loss of damage. Well, what we didn't know is they'd stolen all our money, uh, that they weren't, in fact, doing the meetings, uh, that they were robbing names from uh, uh, telephone books across the Southeast and lying to us. And then when we asked for the, the, the information that we needed in order to be able to prove up the claims, they committed the, 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 the crimes of not only forgery, uh, where they filled out these forms and questionnaires, but they also went into a social security database and robbed about 20,000 social security numbers from this database and assigned them 
to the names that they had pulled out of phone books um, and, you know, forged signatures for uh, so that we could get the information. Obviously, when we sent that kind of stuff into the IRS, it alerted every federal agency there was. And we're blindly thinking we're uh, proving up the damages. Right. Uh, in effect, we're telling the federal government, hey, we've got 20,000 people uh, that, that don't really exist. Uh, and so it was the largest fraud in the history of the, you know, the, the, the judicial system in the United States. But uh, uh, the federal government thought that we were involved with it. And in fact, we were duped and uh, the victims of it. Right. And then and, and some of the evidence in the case that, that, that I heard about is that you, uh, along with your, uh, you know, group that was investing in these cases with you, uh, spent uh, about $10 million on on trying to track down potential claimants, get all of their information. And then it turned out that a huge chunk of that, more than half of it, was just being spent on uh, personal items, cars, uh, what what have you going to casinos and, and things like that. Yeah. The, the, the folks who actually did the crime, uh, there was a Baptist minister, uh, from Louisiana named Gregory Warren, um, who subcontracted out this entire field operation to a Vietnamese lady by the name of Christy Lee. Uh, and of course, um, because of the, the elements of the law in maritime law, um, I felt like the only people we could recover for originally were offshore fishermen and shrimpers. And about 89% of them in the Gulf of Mexico came from Vietnam after the war. And so they all speak only Vietnamese. And so they subcontracted the workout to this Vietnamese lady who seemed very nice. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that that led to a massive fraud. Um, and so we weren't able to talk to the clients. We were, you know, we, we had to trust these folks. And so we started hiring Vietnamese people to try to get a hold of them. Weren't able to, uh, we put together 43,000 packets, uh, to try to get the information we needed filled out, uh, sent folks into the field, spent another $750,000 to go get them. And these packets just weren't coming back and we couldn't figure out why. Uh, so we started alerting people, uh, including the lead counsel for the BP, uh, multi-district litigation. Uh, you know, I was on the plaintiff steering committee. We alerted right. the court. We alerted uh, the settlement administrator. We alerted everybody. Uh, but apparently, uh, the United States uh, attorney for the Southern District of Mississippi uh, wanted the hide of a prominent plaintiff's lawyer. And that's been kind of a trend where, uh, starting under the Bush administration, there was a, a bunch of high-profile plaintiff's lawyers that were indicted. Uh, including Milberg Weiss, which was the most right. uh, prominent class action firm in the United States. A lot of people know about Dickie Scruggs, right, who right. engineered the nationwide cigarette settlement. A gentleman by the name of Harold Miner, who was one of the, the, the most prolific plaintiff's lawyers in Mississippi. So this is a repetitive trend where, um, you know, um, under the Bush administration, criminal indictments were being levied against their political opponents. And it, it, it seems to have uh, continued here um, as part of uh, a, an assistant U.S. attorney by the name of John Dowdy, uh, who decided he was going to go get himself another notch on his belt by trying to take Michael Watts out. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked. No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. 
Yes, and LTS Legal Technology Services are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Well, and I, I know that we'll talk about this more later in terms of strategically how you approached um, your defense, but it, was it was it wanting to sort of you know, get what, get this victory or this kind of, um, um, notch on his belt that sort of, because one of the points that you make in, um, that you made throughout the case was that you knew from your MDL experience that if somebody was not real, if they turned out to not be real or have dropped off the face of the earth or whatever, that there was never going to be any actual money paid to a person who couldn't prove their identification, prove their damages and that sort of thing. I mean, is that, was the government just sort of ignoring that or were they just not familiar enough with how the MDL process would really work? Yeah, I, I think that uh, those of us in the legal field understand that this popular perception that people file civil lawsuits and get something for nothing is not a reality. Uh, very capable defense lawyers vet all the cases that are filed make sure that are legitimate cases. In the MDL context, that's even more stringently done. I mean, there's special masters. Uh, there's all sorts of vetting, not only by the defendant, but by the settlement administrators that set this up. Ken Feinberg was involved. Uh, and, and so the idea that somebody with a great deal of, of multi-district litigation or just basic litigation experience would think that he can make up a bunch of cases and ever get paid is just right. not reality. The, the fact of the matter is, is the civil justice system has a huge numbers of checks and balances and traps to make sure that only meritorious claims are paid. So the entire premise or, or theme of the case was just, you know, false on its face. Right. And, the, you know, and, and we'll talk about uh, the testimony of Ken Feinberg. I, re I read his direct and your cross and, uh, and uh, I thought it was your cross was just, I mean, very direct, very simple, very to the point. But, you know, the, I mean, um, MDLs uh, where you're, where all of them have thousands of people who are making claims, um, they're always going to have, and I think this point was made with, with Mr. Feinberg, but uh, always going to have some that claims to just turn out not to be uh, verifiable or legitimate. And I mean, I think, you know, the, the FEMA case, the, the formaldehyde case that you uh, pointed to where 99.4% of them were claims that were paid, that's got to be one of the uh, exceptions to, I mean, that's got to be one of the highest numbers of paid claims, I would imagine, uh, compared to other MDLs. Sure. I mean, if you have 100,000 claimants and there were about 75,000 in the FEMA case, 
and 0.4% don't check out, I mean, that's still 400 people who have filed a claim that, that just couldn't be verified. And I agree with you. In most multi-district litigations involving pharmaceuticals and these kinds of things, those people are not going to get paid because they took the drug at issue. Uh, they've got to show up with medical records and they've got to show up with proof. It shows that the drug at issue, in fact, harmed them. So, um, you know, the results that we got in FEMA were unusually uh, high in terms of the success rate, in large part because we proved that people were in the FEMA trailers through a government database. Um, and so, you know, bottom line is the people that we trusted in BP had done a good job for us in FEMA. Um, but I think what happened is they subbed it out um, because they, they lacked the ability to speak Vietnamese, and that's where right. Right. And we should, I, I, we touched on this already and I can't, I'm not sure if we've talked about this a whole lot in previous episodes, but just for our, um, I know we have some listeners who aren't lawyers, but when we talk about MDL or multi-district litigation, I mean, the reason that you're doing this is because these claims are really too small to bring individually, either because the costs are going to outstrip the recovery or other sort of logistical issues. So, I mean, MDLs can be the only really method of recovery or the best method of recovery for people that maybe don't have large damages, but you group them together and then you can get recovery. So that's part of why we're talking about these numbers of, of why you have thousands of people and why you have to contract some of this work out because of all the deadlines. But that's well, if anybody's really, sitting and listening and wondering why these people just didn't file, hire a lawyer and file their own case, that's why. Well, they, they do hire a lawyer and file their own case, but they all get sucked up into one multi-district litigation proceeding. And, and, and the thinking was, and it's back in the 60s, I mean, this system is 50 years old now, that if you have several hundred or several thousand or, or several tens of thousands of carbon copy lawsuits around the United States, it doesn't make sense from the standpoint of, of efficiency to have 10,000 judges hearing 10,000 lawsuits, all the same arguments. Uh, it doesn't make sense from the standpoint of efficiency for the chief executive officer of BP uh, to be deposed 10,000 times or for the depositions to happen over and over again. So Congress you know, created a system where uh, the chief justice of the United States appoints seven judges for six-year terms that are the JPML, the Joint Panel on multi-district litigation, and they decide whether there's there's common issues of law and fact, and if there are, they can consolidate every federal court case in the country in front of one judge who was appointed the MDL judge, and, and, and that he or she is responsible for all of the discovery, all of the pretrial administration, so you don't have inconsistent rulings, and so it's very efficient. Uh, it, and then the second thing is, is, of course, you're taking on a $60 billion corporation. Any one plaintiff operating alone is going to get smushed. But if there's thousands of them operating together, then you kind of even the economic playing field and make it uh, more of a fair fight. Right. So, uh, so Michael, I want to uh, back up and we, you know, we don't normally talk about this, but um, you know, you have handled hundreds of cases. You, you know, go across the country and are, you know, speak to groups about trial tactics. And, and my understanding, I read one article that basically you were about ready to go in and speak to a group at AAJ. I think it was when yeah. you get the call that your offices have been raided by the uh, justice department. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it was really surreal. It was February the 8th of 2013. Um, AAJ's winter meeting um, was in Miami. 
and I was supposed to, uh, in, in the paradox of paradoxes, go give a speech to a bunch of lawyers about how to properly run a mass tort department. Right. Uh, and so uh, I'm in my airplane flying over there uh, on a Friday afternoon. I think I'm supposed to speak on Sunday or Monday. I can't remember. And when I land, um, my phone is just on fire with hundreds of texts and missed calls and mailboxes full. And the first person I called was my wife and she works in the same business complex that I do. Uh, and she says, Hey, the secret service is outside your offices and there's 50 cop cars. Uh, and then I've got another office called the mass tort office down the street, uh, where another 50 secret service agents were out there. And it's very much a military operation. Um, and of course, you know, I'm not a criminal lawyer. Uh, as I like to joke, the reason I represented myself is I was undefeated in criminal matters. <laughs> right. And the reason for that is the one time I contested a ticket, the cop didn't show up. And so I won. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I know enough about it that when the federal government raids your offices, that's not a good thing. And right. that, that is um, the results of a multi-year investigation. It's uh a situation where, of course, it's a very public situation, which is a, uh, you know, a, a reputational death blow. Um, and then you've got uh, likely criminal peril in terms of uh, indictments. And then the statistics are um, that 99.7% of Americans who are indicted by the federal uh, United States Attorney's Office uh, end up convicted either through a plea agreement or through a conviction at trial. So the the the, the numbers are absolutely daunting that if the federal government comes after you, you are cooked. Right. So, well, that, that's a tough deal. So I'm in Miami about ready to give this speech and I find out I've been raided. And of course my problem is, is I've got 130 employees in five different offices that I know are all scared to death. And so I had a friend uh, cover me and I went back and had to look in the whites of the eyes of all of my employees and say, look guys, I don't know why this happened, but, 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 look at me and trust me, you're not going to lose your job. And, and trust me, this did not happen. We did not commit a fraud and we will fight this and we will succeed. And almost to a person, 130 people uh, stood by me, trusted me uh, and fought the fight with me over the course of the next several years. But, but it was something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Right. Um, well, and that, that's just a testament to, you know, uh, the relationship you have with your employees, which is, uh, which is fantastic. Well, they've done so, a lot of good things for a lot of clients. Right. Over the years, so they believe in what we do. Right. Right. So it, it you know, and I, as I said, um, you know, and this, I, I mean, uh, you personally, this has got to be just something terrible to go through, but when you also find out that your brother and even your paralegal, uh, are facing criminal charges, uh, that's just got to feel, uh, well, I don't know it, how you deal with that. It's, it's very, Interesting. I learned a lot about the federal criminal system. Um, prosecutors, when they take the oath of office, are supposed to promise that they're not after convictions, they're after justice, they're after the truth. But one thing that all of the um, of this nation's history, in terms of the Warren Court having to roll back prosecutorial advantages, has taught me is that when you put human beings with enormous power in the in the position of prosecutors' offices. Uh, a lot of them with political goals. Uh, I'd sure love to be a governor uh, like Chris Christie. Uh, you know, yeah. I just need to win this big case and then I can run for governor. Um, you know, I think that's a recipe for, for altered judgment, if not absolute unethical, uh, you know, uh, 
unethical activities. And, and so they have a lot of prosecution uh, power. Mm-hmm. They have the ability to uh, harass. They have the ability to intimidate. Uh, and the bottom line is, is that my brother and my paralegal, as I look back at it, were indicted for one reason and one reason only, and that was to put pressure on me. Um, and the game is, is not what the facts actually show. It's who you can pressure into rolling over uh, uh, to giving the prosecutor who they want um, and a conviction. And so it, it was just an outrage to me that my paralegal apparently was, was indicted because she sent a disc with information that I told her to send and, and signed the cover letter to another paralegal at the Kirkland Ellis law firm in Chicago. That's all she did, but she got indicted. Uh, and, and the reason she was indicted is so that the prosecutors could get her to roll over on me and, mm-hmm. and confess that, that, Oh yes, we were in the middle of the fraud and Michael made me do it. Of course it was absurd. Um, my brother, um, that's even, uh, what's well, just as outrageous. Uh, there are a lot of folks that are prosecutors that when they can't get people to plead guilty to things they didn't do, they start putting pressure on family members. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, this varsity blues thing where all of the parents are being prosecuted for, you know, maybe paying illicit benefits to get their kids into college. Well, half of them uh, pled guilty under pressure. Uh, I think Felicity Huffman uh, may have done that. And then there's another actress just like her that contested it. Right. And, you know, you would think that in a country where we're constantly taught you're innocent until proven guilty. And the sixth amendment says you have a right to a civil jury trial before you are convicted of anything, you'd think that that right would be honored and it would be okay to exercise that right. Well, our criminal justice system has has perverted that into a situation where if you don't plead early, um, sweetheart deals aren't available to you. If you don't help us lean on somebody that we want, we'll indict you, which is what happened to my brother. Uh, and oh, by the way, if, if you are tried and convicted uh, from the standpoint of sentencing guidelines, you get a three level increase for failure to take responsibility. All that's code word is, is that if you'll roll over on whoever we want you to roll over on, A, you might not be indicted like several people in this situation. B, if you are indicted, you can plead to a misdemeanor, not get any jail time. Uh, You just need to give us the testimony we need to get the target that we want. And oh, by the way, if you don't roll over and you are convicted, uh, we're going to throw the book at you in terms of sentencing time. Well, um, let's talk, uh, you know, about the case itself. And, and, you know, one of the most interesting things, Michael, is the, is the fact that you um, now you had a number of co-defendants. And so there was a number of defense lawyers involved in the case, but you chose to represent yourself. Um, talk about, the, you know, your uh, decision to do that. And, and um and what the thought process was. Well, you know, when my offices were first raided, um, fortunately, unlike most people who are put in the crosshairs of of the, you know, the criminal justice system, I had resources to fight. Uh, So I hired the best lawyer that I could find in in Mississippi, Rob McDuff, who had uh, achieved the not guilty verdict for a state Supreme Court justice on a very high profile bribery case. Uh, thought the world of Rob still do. Uh, for my brother, I hired a guy named Mike McCrum, who is a criminal defense lawyer, uh, primarily white collar def- defense lawyer in San Antonio, who is 
just magic in the courtroom and he's become my very good friend. So we lawyer it up at great expense and great cost. And, and then, you know, uh, started getting ready for trial, did some focus groups. Um, but the theme of the case was that Michael Watts has committed some massive fraud to get MDL judge to put him on a plaintiff steering committee so he could get a fee, um, that he otherwise would not get because he wouldn't be on a plaintiff steering committee. Now, over and above the fact that the federal government didn't bother to look at my resume and show, you know, I, I'm on these all the time. Um, but their theory was, Hey, I've committed a fraud in order to get on a plaintiff steering committee. Well, I thought it made sense that if they're trying to say I'm some tomato can lawyer that didn't uh, have the right to be on this plaintiff steering committee, which was the top 16 lawyers in the United States, uh, that maybe the best subliminal defense against that would be, to cross-examine witnesses every day, to give an opening statement, to give a closing argument, uh, to show the 12 people who had my life's fate in their hands, hey, this is a real lawyer. This is a real trial lawyer who probably was entitled uh, to be on this august list of some of the best lawyers in America serving as the lead lawyers for the, the BP case. And so that was the main reason I did it. Of course, the main difficulty in doing it was uh, Abe Lincoln's admonition that he who, you know, represents himself as a fool for a client. Uh, you know, I knew that a hundred thousand lawyers in Texas were going to say, not only is this guy screwed, but he's lost his marbles. Uh, and, and so that was a really difficult thing, knowing that the first reaction is going to be, this guy's crazy. Uh, so I thought about it for a long time. We focus grouped it. Um, and then ultimately I just decided that I, I felt like I could make a better contribution over six weeks of trial when the federal government's calling me the biggest fraud in judicial history. Uh, you know, if you've got somebody else representing you, you know, the best you can do that day is not pick your nose in front of the jury. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're your own lawyer, you can take witnesses, you can cross examine, you can make arguments, uh, and show your competence. And so that's the reason I did it, not some sort of a vanity play. I just felt like given the, the particular theme in this case, it made more sense for me to show this jury that I was a real trial lawyer and therefore didn't need to commit fraud to get on some plaintiff steering committee. I, I did think it was cool that like um, reading your closing, it seemed like it was almost like if, if somebody else had been representing you or you had been representing somebody else in the same, for the same charges, um, it, it would have been, I don't know, taken longer or taken more words or been a little more complicated to explain your position as you went through each one of these counts. But for you, um, arguing on behalf of yourself, you know, you could say like, I didn't do this or, you know, it was, it almost seemed like a really, it allowed you to make these arguments really efficiently and directly because you were talking about yourself, your own knowledge, your own actions. Well, I, I do think that you have the advantage if you can separate the job to be done from the very emotional, you know, problem of, of making yourself not emotional when you're defending yourself, um, that there are advantages to representing yourself. Um, you know, you get to, in effect, testify over four and a half weeks right? right. Uh, as opposed to once. So that's a good thing. Um, I think the other advantage is, is you get to give an hour long opening statement, an hour long closing argument. So that's a good thing. And then thirdly, you know, the government really just tried to throw the kitchen sink at it and intimidate us with the sheer number of, of felony counts. I mean, it was just ridiculous. 95 felony counts when nobody else that I know has ever been indicted for more than two or three. 
Um, and, and I think that they were really trying to engineer some sort of a, okay, you've got us, I'll plead guilty to one count of this. Here's my bar license. I'll never practice law again. So there was a certain degree of efficiency from the standpoint of that. And then most of the witnesses they called who were uh, persons whose identity were stolen, uh, every one of them to a person. No, I don't have any evidence that you did it. No, I don't know how that happened. You know, some of them I represented in FEMA. Some of them, um, you know, just downright admitted that they, they provided information to us. So the fact that we had access to the records with respect to all of those people allowed me to fashion a very specific uh, rifle shot defense to each uh, uh, count as opposed to just guessing and hiding under the burden of proof. Right, right. Um I had a quick question. You had mentioned your opening and um, we had talked about this in emails kind of as Steve and I were getting, getting up to speed on the case, but um, you had deferred your opening. Um, Can you talk a little bit um, about what that means, why you made that decision? And I had never really heard of that. I don't know if that's just my inexperience or if that's a Texas thing or a criminal law thing. Well, the case was in uh, Mississippi and it's not a Texas thing. Uh, no, I mean, it's fine, but uh, I've never heard of it either. Um, but the, the bottom line is, is that you have the right to defer your opening statement in most jurisdictions, including federal court. Um, and this is another reason why maybe, you know, not having a whole lot of experience helped me is you're kind of able to look things, look at things freshly. And, and so I'm sitting here and I've got the United States government versus Michael Watts and six other co-defendants. Uh, at least two of whom I know did the fraud. And we'll get to that in a bit. And I'm thinking, well, okay, the government's going to give its opening statement and I can give mine followed by Mike McCrum on behalf of my brother, followed by Casey Hightower on behalf of my paralegal. Those will all be great. We can coordinate who's going to focus on what and when. But then there's four other court appointed lawyers that I don't know um, that some of them are going to say something valuable. Some of them may fall on the sword. Some of them may point sideways. Uh, and so it just made a lot of sense to me as opposed to being one of seven and lost in the, the, the thicket, if you will, if I deferred my opening statement, number one, a very good criminal lawyer with great experience, Mike McCrum from San Antonio could extol the innocence of my brother who he damn sure was innocent, uh, and do a traditional criminal lawyer opening statement, which he did, which was outstanding. Um, and then I could defer it. And so three and a half weeks later, after I, God, I think a hundred witnesses the government called. Um, they had to rest, and then I get to give up, and I get to get up and give an hour-long speech um, in the form of an opening statement. I'm the only one that gets to speak. the The prosecution doesn't get to go again. None of the other defense lawyers get to go at that point in time because I'm going to introduce my case in chief. And at the time, we had 150 witnesses we wanted to call and big arguments in my war room about how many we needed to call. And eventually, we put on 25 witnesses over four days. But the ability to, to stop the trial, give a powerful opening statement about why you are innocent, not just not guilty or, or you're not hiding behind the burden of proof. You're going to explain how the fraud happened, who did it. Here's the witnesses are going to say it. I thought that was a pivotal moment in the trial. And it just made sense because I didn't want to be one of seven. I wanted to give my my speech about why I was innocent alone. No, and I, I really like that because, you know, I'm sure after three and a half weeks of trial, of any trial, you know, the jury's going to sort of lose focus. They're not going to be, um, you know, some days they're not going to be as engaged, but we all know that happens in trials. So when you get the chance to come in and, uh, you know, give an opening statement, you know, sort of in the middle of trial, it's it's a way to 
re-engage that jury, you know, get them to know you again and get them to hear, you know, your side without anybody being able to say anything um, about it. So I think it's, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I, like Yvonne, I, I think I knew of that just sort of in theory in the back of my mind in criminal cases. And, I, and I'll tell you the amount of criminal cases I've done are, I think, three because in the Southern District of Georgia, when I first started out, they would, the federal judges would uh, assign you cases and you had to take it. So I had a drug dealer, I had a bank robbery. And um, so that, that's my limited experience in criminal cases. But, uh, but I like that strategy a lot of, 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 you know, especially in a long trial of bringing the jury back to, you know, your opening statement and focusing them again. Well, and, and, you know, it's really surprising to me in multi-defendant product liability cases that you and I both try. Uh, if I've got a case against Ford Motor Company and against a seatbelt supplier, I'm not sure it makes a lot of sense for the seatbelt supplier to, to get up and follow Ford's opening statement. Uh, why wouldn't you wait right. until, you know, the plaintiffs put on their stuff and Ford's put on its stuff. And then right before you're going to say how the seatbelt supplier didn't have anything to do with it, go give a speech that nobody can respond to and then put your witnesses on. So I think in multi-defendant cases, whether criminal or civil, it's a strategy that really ought to be looked at. Hmm. I mean, that's interesting. I hope none of our uh, defense lawyers on the other side uh, consider it because I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I, you, you do, you absolutely hate sitting there in the courtroom when somebody's, you know, talking, especially if they're talking against your case and then, uh, and you just can't say anything about it. Well, and, and, and to be blunt, when you have a great trial lawyer like Mike McCrum uh, doing the opening statement for, in effect, your brother, uh, it's as if he's given one to you and you get to give a second one. So that's right. Yeah. And I, I did notice that. I mean, the, the, uh, I mean, he did a, a great uh, opening on, you know, how uh, uh, methodical detail oriented that your brother is and, and uh, you know, how, you know, he spends hours going through these thousand names to pick out, you know, every part that's missing. And, you know, and while that's a great defense of your brother, it's also a great defense of you and your law firm. Well, and, and, and to be honest, um, you know, me representing myself in, in, a massive criminal trial with 95 criminal counts sounds, you know, incredibly brave or incredibly stupid, one or the other. But but <laughs> but Mike McCrum was the security blanket, and I was Linus. Right, <laughs> uh, he was right behind me every time. He made me uh, stay in line. He didn't let me make mistakes. He he invited. Um, I mean, he just invited security because he had so much experience defending these cases, and so. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I didn't make major errors during this trial, but they were quickly corrected by a lawyer who, who had been through a whole bunch of federal criminal uh, trials. And that seemed to me to make sense as well, that, that um, somebody that I respected with more experience in criminal court than I did could keep me in line, uh, which he, he damn sure did. We had some pretty severe arguments that he was polite enough to do in, uh, you know, in the solitude of our own uh, meeting rooms as opposed to in front of everybody else. But, but uh, I tend to try to follow his advice and uh, right. that was a good strategy. Um, well, I wanted to talk about, um, you know, so Ken Feinberg, who's a, a very well-known lawyer, he's, uh, uh, you know, was, set up the, the fund for the September 11th victims, has worked on a number of funds in a number of cases, um, you know, and was uh, set up the fund here. And, and I, you know, when I read, um, the direct of him as the, as the first witness that the government was putting up. And then I read your cross. I was kind of wondering to myself why they would pick him to be their first witness. I guess he sort of laid the groundwork for, you know, some of these 
uh, phone calls they were getting and some of these errors uh, that they were that, that they were seeing and then were then being reported to the Justice Department. But it just seemed like, um, you know, especially with the cross that you did, uh, it just gave you an opportunity to, to talk to this very well-respected lawyer who says, yes, I've dealt with you, you know, many, many times before. You're not the type of guy who tries to pull a fast one or, you know, slip some names through, um, you know, and you're friends with my partner. And yeah, I mean, so it, I, it did make me wonder about why they would call him first, but um, well, I think there were, there were good reasons to call him. I mean, number one, um, it, it gave the case a lot of bang from the standpoint of Ken Feinberg was the man chosen by the president to distribute $20 billion. He had incredible name identification, not only in Mississippi where the trial was, but throughout the Gulf coast because uh, he was, distributing that $20 billion. Um, and then thirdly, um, he had this impeccable resume, you know, when the Congress put together money to take care of Vietnam veterans because of exposure to agent orange, they hired Ken Feinberg to distribute the money. When the Congress says, Hey, we've got 3,800 people, however many it was in nine 11, um, we're going to put together six and a half billion dollars to compensate those folks. They hire Ken Feinberg. So he's got this pedigree, it's unparalleled in the United States. And so I think that the, the government thought, hey, we'll come in, we'll bring Ken Feinberg. He'll be kind of the spokesman for this fraud that was committed. He had written me a letter saying, hey, I'm concerned that, uh, you know, we need X and Y and Z because certain people are claiming their social security numbers have been absconded with. And by the way, 43 of those are your clients. And I'm thinking, well, I've got 44,000 clients. That's less than one-tenth of 1%. One We're looking pretty good. Right. Uh, so they bring him in to prove up that one document about, aha, he told Watts and Watts kept pushing. Um, and what they didn't realize is, is that Feinberg's been around the block and so have I. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for Ken Feinberg. And apparently he shares that respect for me. And so I did something that, that most people should not do on cross-examination. In fact, I told him that. There's a cardinal rule that's taught in law school. Never ask a question on cross that you don't know the answer to. And right. so. In the cross, I said, Mr. Feinberg, we're taught in law school never to ask a question we don't know the answer to, but here it goes. And, you know, you've been in this case, in that case, in this case, in that case that I've been involved in, have you ever known me to be a fraudster? And Ken Feinberg, with his considerable pedigree and his massive ego, leans <laughs> forward into the microphone and looks right at the prosecutor and, and resoundingly says, never. And then I said, well, all the lawyers you've dealt with in all these different cases, listen, seven or eight of them, have you ever heard from any lawyer that I would commit fraud in one of these mass torts? And he gave it to me again, never. And so nobody saw that coming other than I knew Ken Feinberg was an honorable individual who was there under subpoena to prove up a document they were trying to take out of context. But um, in the same way that I have great respect for him, I knew that he had respect for me and uh, you know, was counting on him to communicate that. And he did. And I'm forever thankful for him being honest that day. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. <laughs> uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? 
I think I know where you're going with this and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, <laughs> I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. <laughs> uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. So, um, yeah, and I, and I, like I said, I mean, I thought your cross was, it was just very uh, straightforward, direct and to the point. I mean, it's everything that you want to do in a cross and, and um, you know, it's, it's, even though it, when you, when it's done right and done well, it looks very simple. There's, you know, a ton of work and thought that goes in behind that, but I, I, thought it came off extremely well and and you know and when you want to set the tone for what the trial is going to be like having Ken Feinberg give testimony like that for you uh, yeah. it just well, really hurts the the, the uh, government's case I gotta yeah, imagine well, well, I mean in any case when the first witness becomes a defendant's character witness that's bad right, right. But when the first witness is you know specifically chosen by the president of the United States and then becomes a defendant's character witness that's a bad start to a criminal prosecution <laughs> right, right. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, I think we, we kind of went quickly through, you know, what exactly happened here, but I know you, you said, and I, I want to make sure we understood how it all worked, but that, um, that two of the individuals actually did commit this fraud. Uh, and is, is that, is that Christy Lee and Abby Wynn? No, Christy Lee and Greg Warren. And Greg uh, Warren, I'm sorry. Okay. Warren served 17 years in the federal pen and Christy's okay. seven right now. Okay. And, and, and so the, the vast amount of this, uh, you know, money that was misused and then these names that were, um, these names that were, I guess, stolen and these social security numbers that was engineered between the two of them. Yes. Um, and it's worse than that. Um, so the Southern district of Mississippi, the United States attorney's office, the criminal division chief for a decade during the Bush administration was a guy named John Dowdy. And my good friend, Mike Gallagher, a trial lawyer from Houston, tried a FinFin case in Mississippi in the mid 2000s and got a $150 million actual damages verdict and a gross negligence finding in a bifurcated trial. So the punitive damages segment was about to start. And American Home Products said, we don't want any part of this. We'll settle every case in the state of Mississippi so we can get the hell out of here. <laughs> and they set up a settlement fund that Gallagher earned and everybody in the state could utilize. And there was a lawyer whose name escapes me that submitted to claims of that fund. And his independent contractor was Greg Warren. And Warren went into uh, a medical office, falsified medical information, and made people who were not eligible for the settlement seem as if they were and was caught. And as opposed to convicting the guy that committed the fraud, they gave him two years probation, didn't even ask him to leave the legal field, as long as he would roll over on this trial lawyer who ended up serving six years in prison based on the strength of Greg Warren. Unfortunately, I didn't know any of that. 
and wasn't told any of that. Right. But the thing that really pisses me off is, is that as part of his restitution for his probation, the lawyer at the United States attorney's office that was responsible for monitoring his restitution payments was John Dowdy, who was the guy that had me and died <clears throat> right. on the strength of what Greg Warren was saying. And so they put this criminal back out on the streets to do it again. Uh, it happened again, and it was completely the fault of the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Mississippi. Should have never happened. He should have been barred from the field like Michael Milken was. You know, he couldn't sell junk bonds anymore. But this guy was just set out back on the street uh, to to commit more crime, and that's exactly what happened. And that's the direct responsibility of John Dowdy, the former United States District Attorney, uh, you know, for for the Southern District of Mississippi. Wow. It, it, and so as far as the fraud, so, um, so you had never worked with Greg Warren before, but you had worked with, uh, I'm not sure how you say his name, Eloy Guerra. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd worked with, with Guerra and, um, Warren in the FEMA case and they'd done okay. a great job. Right. Um, you know, the lawyers they were working for had high praise for them and you know, they, they did everything right. But, you know, Warren apparently decided he was gonna, you know, make a fortune in BP and just rip us off. And that's exactly what he did. But, you know, as opposed to just when we started asking for tax release forms and specific things that we needed for each of these clients, you know, maybe he should have just said, you know what, uh, I didn't get paid what I was hoping to get paid in FEMA. I ripped you off. I stole a bunch of money from you. <laughs> but instead, they tried to hide it and they went in and stole 20,000 Social Security numbers to mask their theft of my money. And instead, they stole a bunch of Social Security numbers, which created this disaster of epic performance. Wow. And how did you, how did you figure it out? I mean. That's the benefit of a federal criminal subpoena. Uh, <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is we had no way to figure out why it was happening, what was wrong. We just didn't know. And there was no way to know. And the, the prosecutors had that ability. They had subpoena power. They interviewed over 1,300 people and didn't care what happened. They wanted Michael Watts' hide. Well, when I got indicted, all of a sudden, I've got a federal criminal subpoena. So we subpoena everybody and everything. And I also had, you know, millions and millions of dollars to throw at this to figure out what happened because it was clear to me that it wasn't enough that I didn't know what happened. I had to prove what happened so that the jury didn't think it was me. Right. So we subpoenaed all sorts of bank records and, and, you know, emails and computers and this and that and hired some of the best experts in the country. And I want to give a shout out. Uh, there's a, there's a professor, the chair of epidemiology uh, from the university of Alabama, Birmingham, uh, Dr. Gerald McGuinn, who's a, you know, uh, an epidemiologist that I worked with in FEMA and I called him and I said, Gerald, I need your help. Um, here's what happened. And, and apparently he trusted me enough to, to do it. And he became the forensic expert where literally he took all these massive amounts of data and databases and Excel files and he cracked the case. Um, wow. and, and he was the one to show that they'd gone into the social security database um, and that Christy Lee had been sent back information showing that these weren't real people. She changed the data before she sent them to our law firm so that she could keep getting money. Um, and it was really masterful. I mean, I'm, I'm alive and well. I'm not in federal prison because of Dr. Gerald McGuinn, and I will forever be thankful for the unbelievable hard work that he put in for over six months uh, before my trial because he's the one that figured out what happened and how it happened and who did it. And, 
he came into that federal criminal courtroom in a bow tie. Uh, and I, I think I teased him with his bow tie that he'd been trapped in the math lab for too long. <laughs> and then just very clinically proved exactly what happened, how it happened and email by email and who, you know, hid information and what they did to hide it from us before they sent it to, it was unbelievable. And Gerald McGuinn's testimony is the reason that Greg Warren is in federal prison. Cause frankly, these prosecutors didn't prove a thing. They just threw up a bunch of spaghetti on the wall and hoped that some stuck uh, in our case in chief with Dr. McGuinn, we were able to show what happened, who committed the fraud and how it happened. And, and, and he's the reason uh, that those two criminals are in federal prison right now. Wow. And, 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 I, and I think I saw that it was through the same federal subpoenas where you actually figured out the, um, were able to get their bank accounts and see Ooh. that they were spending, it sounded like upwards of $5 million on lavish trips, clothing, cars, uh, trips to the casino, uh, oh, things like that. It's worse than this. I mean, this guy who says he's called to the ministry and is a Southern Baptist minister, you know, blew hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in gentlemen's clubs. Oh man. I mean, it was just unbelievable how they set $7 million on fire instead of investing it in what we were paying uh, to have happen. And, and the worst part is, is we had, you know, we were sending the money to a Mississippi law firm that was supposed to be doing the work. Apparently he just laundered the funds and sent them off to these two characters um, who stole it and, and spent it on, I mean, presidential suites at the Beau Rivage, you know, high dollar cigars, thousand dollar bottles of champagne, hundred thousand dollar casino bills, uh, you know, I mean, they just own the men's club in Houston, Texas. I mean, it was just outrageous. They set $10 million on fire and then yeah. supposedly admitted they do it, you know, that they did that. Then they committed their second crime and stole 20,000 people's uh, personal identifying information. Wow. <laughs> I really don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> well, you know, the, the scary part is, is that when a prosecutor who, who wants a chit on their, you know, on the resume and wants to run for governor by taking down some big lawyer. I mean, the blinders this guy must've had on to ignore what was obvious to everybody else in the courtroom by the end of that trial. And just, you know, it, it's really a game of who can you get to roll over on your target as opposed to doing the hard work that it takes to prove who did the crime. And they didn't care who did the crime. They wanted to send me to federal prison. And the scary part is, is we're here in the United States you know, but for the fact that I had tens of millions of dollars to throw at this thing and, and just unlimited resources to, to fight back. I mean, this whole thing about only rich people get off. It's true. Right. It's not because they're getting off. It's because they're the only ones with the resources to compete head to head with the federal government that blew tens of millions of dollars on this interviewed 1600 people and then had this incredible pressure that they could apply to innocent people. We're going to indict you if you, you're not a witness against Michael Watts. That's just not going to work unless you've got somebody with the ability to hire a Dr. Gerald McGuinn to do the hard work and, and issue all the subpoenas to prove how a crime occurs. So it's, it's a, you know, the, one of the reasons you started this off, it's like, wow, it's brave of you to come talk about this. Um, you know, this is a, a, a reputational death row for any lawyer. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course I didn't want to go to jail, but from the minute that verdict happened, 
Uh, I've given speeches about this 50 times. Uh, I'm out here in California right now working with a, a documentary film crew um, that we're going to put, put together an eight-part series about this case uh, so that the American people can see that their criminal justice system is not alive and well. It's alive and kicking, and it's kicking innocent people uh, for purposes of satisfying the ego of, of various federal prosecutors. Uh, there's all sorts of procedural problems that exist in the criminal justice system that if you're not plenty loaded and have plenty of resources, you are screwed. Yeah. And, and I'm convinced, I really am. I'm convinced that, that our federal and state prisons, I'm sure most of the people in there are guilty. Don't get me wrong. But, but I think upwards of 10 to 15% of 3 million people presently serving in federal prison and state prison across the United States, we've got the highest incarcerated population in the world. And, and I think a fair minority of them are there because they've been economically cajoled to plead to stuff you're never going to win. 99.7% of the people indicted are going to go to jail. And oh, by the way, you don't have the money to fight them and we'll never be able to win. And so people just cop to things that they did not do because they don't have a fair shot in court. And that's a scary country to live in. Yeah. Well, and it, yeah, and it's, you know, when they give you these offers, if you don't plead, you know, you, you plead, you may get, uh, you know, two or three years. But if you don't plead and we go to trial and, you know, bring in the 800 pound gorilla, you're going to end up serving maybe 25, 30 years. I mean, so some people well, just, you just have no choice. Yeah. You know, and I, I give my wife uh, a lot of credit for that. Um, my wife and kids never once said, let's take the sure thing and you'll be out in two or three years. My wife said, look, I know your character. You didn't do this. We're not pleading to a thing that you didn't do. And, and um, that's terrifying because with 95 felony counts, including aggravated identity theft 24 times, that's a mandatory two-year sentence per count. And so they were going for life in prison based on something I didn't do. And so it was a put all the dice out there. Um, but, you know, if it, if it had gone badly, that would have been, you know, that would have been the end. Mm. So, um, I mean, it's just an incredible story, but I, I do want to talk a little bit more about trial tactics. Uh, you mentioned that you focus group this case. Uh, tell us about some of the focus groups and, and um, how that helped you develop your theming and, and um, it, issues like that. Sure. You know, I just said that, that Gerald McGuinn was my savior. Uh, he's certainly exhibit A. Exhibit B and C um, are Robert Hirschhorn and Lisa Blue. Um, Lisa's a longtime friend of mine, as is Robert. Um, Robert's done some of the, the jury selection on some of the more prominent criminal cases in this country's history, including George Zimmerman um, in Florida. Um, and literally, I didn't call them. Uh, one of the things that makes me proudest is my friend Lisa Blue and Robert Hirschhorn together on the phone called me. And they said, we want to help you. We'll do it for free. I didn't let them do it for free, but at the same time, they practically did. Right. Um, and we know your character. Um, we want to help you. And so we did a series of three focus groups at the tail end of 2015 and spring of 2016 um, and learned what the issues were. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing and one of the things that gives me great comfort in our jury system is I was indicted by the United States District Attorney's Office in Jackson, Mississippi, which voted for President Obama with about 75% of the vote. And I'm one of the biggest Democratic fundraisers 
in the state of Texas, uh, given more money than all but one person in the last decade. And so they knew this and president Obama had been at my house and that was a big deal to these guys. And, and so you have these folks that are indicting me from Jackson, which is a democratic venue. And somehow my trial gets placed in Gulfport, Mississippi, which is the most Republican County in the state of Mississippi. And it was clearly an effort to have a bunch of Republicans throw a Democrat uh, into the fire and just cook him. <laughs> and one of the things that we learned in these focus groups is, is that, uh, Republican jurors did not trust their government. Yeah. Uh, they thought that uh, the government um, just was not to be trusted. It was so prevalent that here I am, one of the biggest Democrats in the United States, and, and Hershorn convinced me to strike the Democrats and keep the Republicans. <laughs> and, and that makes me really proud about our jury system because I'm sitting here with a jury of 12 people from Jackson, Mississippi that I've never met. Uh, most of whom uh, have political views with which I disagree and I trusted them to do the right thing. And they, they answered the bell of jury service. Uh, they gave up their jobs and their conveniences. And for four and a half weeks, they listened to the evidence and they came out resoundingly. I mean, uh, we've talked to several of them since and they, they exonerated me in about six minutes, my brother in about another five minutes. And then they had the ability to go convict the people that did the deal. So, so my point is, is that the hero of this story is the American jury system and those 12 people that showed up and did their job. Uh, they, they didn't blindly put on, uh, you know, blinders and, and say, well, the government charged it, it must be true. They checked the government. Uh, they made the government show up and prove its case. And not only did they, they poorly, poorly, uh, show up with an attempt to do so. I mean, it just wasn't true. But then when we put on our case in chief and showed, you know, we're not relying upon this, you must prove it beyond a reasonable doubt nonsense. I mean, it's not nonsense. Uh, but I wanted to prove that I was innocent. And we right. did. And then I also proved who did it and they got it all and they did the right thing. And so my faith in the American jury system is as strong as it's ever been. My faith in the prosecution system and the American criminal justice system, uh, I'm terrified uh, for citizens across the United States that lack the resources that I had to defend themselves because what's clear to me is it's a rich man's game. If you don't have economic uh, capacity, you're cooked. Um, if you don't have the ability to put on a defense, you're cooked. And even then, with prosecutors being able to lean on people and prosecute people's brothers and their paralegals with the sole goal of getting them to roll over on innocent men. Uh, that's a scary world to live in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you, you've told us about the, um, I guess, I, you know, we obviously didn't have a chance to read the entire transcript. We, we read bits and pieces, but I, I'm wondering, um, there's two things that I noticed. One is uh, in your cross-examinations, you always went first. And then I think uh, uh, Mr. McCrum uh, followed you. Uh, so I was wondering about the strategy there. And maybe it's the, you know, that you know that you've got uh, him behind you in case, you know, uh, is your security blanket, as you're saying. But then I was also just wondering what types of experts did the government bring and how were they uh, addressed in cross? So let me answer the McCrum question first. Um, it's not true that he always went behind me. What we did every night and, and another game the government was playing, I had to file a motion to get them to tell me who the witnesses were the next day so I could prep crosses. They said that was their work product, which is just absurd. Right. 
Judge Garola, uh, who I want to brag on in a minute, because that's another victory of this process, is, is a highly conservative Republican former prosecutor gave me the fairest trial you could ever hope for. And, and I thank God every day for Louis Corolla. But in any event, um, he, I had to file a motion in front of him to get the prosecution to tell me who the witnesses were that they were going to call the next day. He ordered that they should have to do it at 6 PM. They'd give us 25, 30 names a day just to throw us off the scent and they'd call five people. So I had an army of people in a war room every night, preparing crosses that were never given. I mean, never used because the government was playing this game and that shouldn't be part of uh, our criminal justice system. But the bottom line is, is what, what McCrum and I did is we took the witnesses on the list and we split them up. We called it D one, which was me defendant one D two, which was him. And he took half of them and I took half of them. We literally split it up that way. Uh, Inevitably two competitive guys, you'd have a person on the witness stand and I'd say, Hey, can I ask a few questions before you get going? And he'd say, yeah, reluctantly. And then, (laughs) but you know, um, um, Mike McCrum is a guy that I would bet my life on. In fact, I did bet my life on him and there's nobody I'd rather go to battle with. So he he was, he was brilliant and um, he did half the witnesses. And then, yeah, and as far as the experts that the government brought, had, t- talked about who they brought and, and how you addressed them on, on cross-examination. So, you know, the, the disappointing thing about the federal government in this case was they didn't care what the truth was. They wanted the ability to, in effect, um, win. And so the Secret Service, and, I, and I've heard this from a number of people in the criminal justice system, that the FBI is excellent at what it generally does, but the secret service is kind of the redheaded stepchild little brother that is known for doing pissant investigations and not doing a good job. And I, I think they do a great job protecting the president. But my point is, is that the, the, the work by the secret service in this case was deplorable. Um, their tactics were outrageous. The way they pressured witnesses was disgusting, but, but their inability to see the big picture was just, silly. Uh, they called an agent Wigley, um, who was going to follow the money. And you've heard from, you know, all the president's man in Watergate, follow the money. So by this point in time, I knew that, that seven, $8 million of my money had been blown up by these two characters that committed the crime. So when Wigley came, I, I, I thought he was going to spend his testimony going through about how Greg and Christy spent all my money. And what he did is he showed up and he said, these are the checks into Michael Watts from his investors. These are the checks out. He actually made money. Of course, he was wrong because one of my investors had, had was my co-counsel in the FEMA case. There was a $3.2 million check to cover his half of the expenses. And so I got to cross-examine him and blow up his face and show that he was an idiot. But but the bottom line is, is that, you know, they, they didn't show up with much in terms of good expert witnesses. What they did is they showed up with my business partner, John Kraken, who by the time the cross was over, Uh, was my witness. They showed up with Ken Feinberg, their first witness, who by the time which cross was over was my character witness, showed up with a bunch of so-called victims. um, And and I'm not saying they weren't victimized. Uh, Their their identities were stolen, but not by me. So every cross-examination showed that we didn't do that. And then they called a a Secret Service agent who was Agent Wigley, who didn't know his, his, I mean, he didn't know come here from Sikkim to use a Texas phrase, which means he's an idiot. Uh, and, and it was just outrageous. It was, it was disgusting to me that an investigation that takes $10 million and 1,300 interviews 
didn't have a central focus, didn't have a central theme, wasn't grounded in reality or fact. It was all designed to pursue a misguided theory that I must have been in charge of a conspiracy that, that I didn't know about and didn't participate in and was the victim of. Yeah. Wow. So in, in, um, I only saw the verdict form for you. Are the only two people who got uh, convicted, Greg Warren and Christy Lee? Yes. Um, the, the, the seven people who were tried, myself, uh, we, we got 29 counts dismissed before trial. Um, and then 66 counts went to the jury. And so um, listening to a jury verdict come in in a criminal case is nothing like what I've experienced in a criminal case. It took three and a half hours to read the verdicts. Oh, wow. 66 counts times seven defendants. But the bottom line is, is that they exonerated myself, my brother David, my paralegal Winter, uh, in short order. Um, they convicted Gregory Warren. They exonerated his business partner, uh, Eloy Guerra, and they convicted Christy Lee and exonerated her cousin, Abby Nguyen. So this jury uh, had the ability to parse the evidence and give the just verdict of exoneration to five people and the just verdict of guilty uh, to two people. And, and so that's just another reason why I have faith in what they did. They, they parsed the evidence and did the right thing. Now, I know the, the, the verdict form for you was 14 pages, but I'm still wondering if you had it framed. <laughs> well, you know, the, the scary part was, is that, you know, you would think with 66 counts, the judge would just say, okay, these guys are guilty. These guys aren't. But the poor clerk who I adored um, had to sit there and read, you know, in count number one, the United States versus Michael Watson, violation of you know, so-and-so of the United States code, conspiracy to commit, you know, con uh, you know, the deprivation of honest service. I mean, each one of the things took about 35 seconds. And then she'd say, you know, verdict guilty or not guilty verdict is not guilty. And then she do it over again, 66 times. So I'm literally up there terrified. I mean, yeah. When we gave the closing arguments, it was on a Wednesday afternoon and they ended about three fifty. And, and most trial lawyers have a pretty good idea whether you want a case or not. It's just a question of how much in a civil deal. Uh, in this thing, I was pretty sure that we were in good shape, uh, but the consequences were so incredible, right? I mean, your law license, your marriage, the rest of your life. I mean, it was just terrifying. And so when the closing arguments were finished, we had this incredible grace and we knew that we had won and we felt good about it. And then we get the call from the clerk that the verdict is in and the judge walks in, spends, God, it felt like 20 minutes looking at the verdict form, which went on for, you know, a hundred pages. Mm -hmm. um, and then he, he, he literally looks at me and says, Michael Watts, rise and face your jury. And at that time, all of the bravado and oh, yeah. the feeling like you had it in the bag, I mean, was just replaced by abject terror. It, it was just terrifying. And it was for 35 minutes. And then when the last count said not guilty, you didn't sit down and feel good about yourself because your big brother has to do through, you know, go through the same thing. And so I grab his calf when, when my verdicts are being read, he stands up next to me and, and the judge told him to sit down, but he wouldn't, um, you know, cause I didn't have a lawyer to stand with me. I was my lawyer. And right. then 
when his verdict was, the judge told me to sit down and I wasn't going to press my luck, you know. <laughs> well, I, grabbed, I grabbed his calf and just held on to it for the next 30 minutes. And then we had to sit there holding the hand of our innocent paralegals crying. And it was just, it was awful. It was terrifying. But, but 198 counts over an hour into the reading of the charge, I mean, the jury verdict. And you turn around for the first time and our entire you know, family was there with all friends and relatives and every one of them is crying and all of a sudden all that bravado and you know, the, the adrenaline just crashed and you just start bawling in open court. It was kind of humiliating, but, uh, <laughs> but I guess I'd be, I'd rather be bawling for victory than I was bawling. Right. It, was, it was the most, it was the most emotional thing I've ever been through. It was unbelievable. Wow. I mean, it's just an incredible story. And I, I, I know you said you had a chance to talk to the jurors. Um, did they tell you, tell, tell me about that. Did they talk about, you know, what carried the day for them or was it more just a, a thank you or? No, it, it's been more than both actually. Um, so uh, there's a helicopter flying above me. So I apologize to you. Uh, <laughs> he's, he'll be gone in a minute. Um, so there's a lot more than that. Um, after I was indicted, my friend, um, Mary Beth Chapman, who was the wife of a prominent Christian music artist named Stephen Curtis Chapman, uh, calls me up out of the blue and she says, have you seen making of a murderer? And I said, no, what is it? And she says, it's on Netflix. And, and I swear to God, it's true. I said, well, what's Netflix? <laughs> and so I call my 16-year-old son in, and he gets me hooked up to Netflix. And I start binge-watching Making of a Murderer. And by the end of the seven or eight episodes, I was just transfixed. And I called up my buddy Christian Archer, who's my best friend. And, um, and I said, have you seen Making of a Murderer? And so he binge-watched it. And so we kind of had the, the idea of doing a film on this. Um, but in the, it, it's cavalier to represent yourself in a federal criminal situation, but we decided to call a film crew in and my friend Christian, uh, hired a film crew and we filmed the entire five weeks of the process of going through trial. Wow. And he's supposed to be my best friend, but he made me sign a contract that said that he got to, do the film, whether I was found guilty or not, full <laughs> form on his part. But at the bottom line is, is we collected over 700 hours of video during the five and a half weeks of this trial. We shipped it out every day so that it wouldn't be subject to the uh, subpoena power of the court. Um, and we spent the last three years working on what was going to be a 90 minute documentary is now going to be an eight part uh, Netflix type series uh, about what it's like to get indicted in America. And, um, so as part of that process to answer your question, uh, uh, three or four months after the trial, we invited the 12 jurors out to dinner. Most of them showed up. We told them what we were going to do and most of them agreed to participate. So we've interviewed, um, a number of these jurors who are my citizen heroes. Several of them are my friends on Facebook. Now, uh, it's like they're members of my family. Uh, but the bottom line is, is what they told us is the closing arguments concluded on Wednesday afternoon at 3.50. Uh, the court told them to read the charge and pick a jury uh, four person. They did, and then they announced they wanted to go home for the evening. And at 9 a.m. on Thursday morning, uh, the four person, uh, who was a very accomplished uh, nurse from the area, 
uh, started the deliberations off by asking the other 11 jurors, does anybody here think Michael Watts did a damn thing wrong? And not one hand went up and I was exonerated by 902. And then the same thing with my brother and the same thing with my paralegal. And by about 906, it was over. But then they started looking at the evidence with, with Greg Warren. And so they spent three and a half hours deciding which of the four of the remaining uh, defendants were guilty and not. And uh, that's the way the verdict came down. So we got a call about 1130 that said they had a verdict. Um, we were about ready to eat lunch. Uh, went to the federal courthouse. Greg Warren had disappeared. We thought he was on the lamb. Uh, <laughs> it took him two hours to get there. And boy, was the judge pissed off. Oh, man. But uh, anyway. And you're having to wait that whole time. Well, we're having to wait. Uh, my, my law partner and all my lawyers are back in San Antonio. They, you know, they get the word at 1130. We've got a verdict. They're literally outside of a restaurant in a parking lot. Uh, all huddled around, you know, waiting on the verdict, crying, you know, and there's 130 people that are going to lose their job if this doesn't go right. And they're wondering why they're not hearing. It must be bad. There's no answer. They didn't know not showing up, you know? So anyway, eventually they get the verdict and, and, you know, just abject euphoria. Um, And so we had a big party. It was the most expensive dinner I've ever paid for uh, (laughs) in, in Elkport, Mississippi. And then, drove home. My wife told me that I was going to spend a week off. I spent an entire week thinking about how to sue the federal government on what's called a building case. Right. The Fifth Circuit law is just an abject disaster, as is the law with respect to anything anti-prosecution. So decided not to do that and went back to work to rebuild my law firm and then stared at the computer screen for four and a half months. Mm. Uh, And and having done hundreds of wrongful death cases and talked about mental anguish and post-traumatic stress disorder, I finally realized what it was. And so I I literally just couldn't, I wasn't functional for four and a half months. And then somebody asked me to go give a speech to a law school. So I did that. I wrote a speech, PowerPoint, started giving it. And then we started working on the film. And as the end of my speeches is, I appreciate you coming. um, And you've really helped me because it's a lot cheaper than paying a psychiatrist $350 (laughs) and trying to sit on a couch. Um, And and so, you know, about January, kind of got through it and went about the task of rebuilding my law firm, which is what we've been doing for the last two and a half years. Wow. Wow. I can't, I cannot wait to see the documentary series. I mean, yeah, what, what's the uh, status of that? When is that coming out? Well, um, that's a good question. Uh, for a long time, it was going to be a 90 minute doc, uh, movie. And we decided that it needed to be a, um, you know, an eight part series. And so it's in production right now. Uh, we've got a lot of people working on it and, uh, doing an eight part Netflix kind of thing is, it's much more difficult than doing a 90 minute documentary, but we're also producing a book about it. Um, and you know, the goal is, uh, to light a fire under the American citizenry about if this could happen to me, it could happen to you. And we need procedural reforms of our criminal justice system. Yeah. Wow. Well, I can't, I mean, like Yvonne said, I can't wait to see that. So I, I have to ask you, Michael, you, you said that for the last two and a half years, you've been rebuilding your law firm. How, what's your feeling on MDLs at this point? And, you know, well, I think, I think my best defense was, is that the, the, the traps and the procedures that are in MDLs uh, do a good job of filtering out unmeritorious claims um, that people who are not entitled to, uh, to be paid don't get paid. Um, and, and fortunately we were able to show that. And, and, you know, if, if you poll different professions, 
Uh, trial lawyers are right above car dealers in terms of people's perceptions. But, but when you, when you spend the time to explain to them what we do, the importance of what we do, that we are the only thing available to people victimized by large corporations, um, and the process and the traps and the safety mechanisms to make sure that only meritorious claims are being paid. Uh, that's a system that, uh, your average citizen is proud of. And, and so we showed that system to those 12 people and they understood, of course, this guy wouldn't commit this fraud because the system is designed in such a way that only good claims, real people with real claims are going to get paid. Uh, so, so the fact that the MDL system works is part of the reasons that I'm still uh, here practicing in it and not sitting in a federal prison for something that I didn't do. Wow. Well, this is, um, Michael, this has been just a, a really great uh, experience. I, I, you know, just have to apologize for what you've been through. Um, I want to remind our listeners that we've been talking to Michael Watts about the case of the USA versus Michael Watts uh, that was tried in uh, 2016 in the Southern District of Mississippi, uh, United States District Court, Southern Division. Uh, and Michael was uh, uh, exonerated on all counts, as was uh, his brother and his paralegal. Um, and Michael, uh, thank you so much. Uh, let me also remind everyone, if you want to, if you want to look up Michael, uh, you can go to his website, which is Watts Guerra. That's WattsGuerra.com. That's W-A-T-T-S-G-U-E-R-A.com. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. This has been just a, uh, a fantastic interview. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.